And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all across the country into other countries and potentially into the lower stratosphere as well. You can also listen to the podcast at greenmajority.ca, where there's also lovely pictures of all of our volunteers, including Dave. Mm. There's an, it is a nice photo of you, Dave. It is, but the information is old. We need to update all that stuff. <laughs> Don't change the picture. That's one of my favorite pictures of you of all time. So, uh, Dave, uh, you're going to help me out here for a second because uh, I'm uh, I'm teching and we're short a Stefan. That's right. Uh, but we're we're up a uh, we're up a Tim, mm-hmm. but we're minus a remote Tim. So I'm going <laughs> to. Here's what's happening on the show today, folks. We have Lauren, our correspondent. Lauren's going to be coming in and talking to us. Uh, I'm assuming, among other things, about PowerShift. Um, we'll get an update on how that went among other news items from our correspondent and Tim Nash, our favorite and uh, might I say our only, but definitely our favorite um, uh, economics correspondent, you might mm. say, uh, uh, economic correspondent, generally speaking, um, he's going to be joining us. He was sort of co-hosting today and there was a there was a dog emergency. So he's having to do it remote. So there's going to be a tiny bit of juggling. Mm-hmm. The first juggling you will notice is that, uh, David, now you're going to um, just outline quickly a couple of the general items we're going to be talking to Tim about. Uh, Tim, who's probably listening right now you were going to call you right now <laughs> yes uh, so uh, yes as we wait for the uh, sustainable economist himself the green comet mr tim nash most frequent guest of the show to join us uh, i'll just say how we're going to uh, t- uh continue the show so we're going to start hopefully talking with tim about a uh, article in which he was recently featured in the toronto star speaking about his favorite topic uh, green investment and how to, how to make your f- portfolio sustainable and how that can be uh, economically beneficial rather than detrimental as it has traditionally been viewed. Uh, ideally, we're going to go back to a story which we covered a couple of weeks ago very briefly about Canadian pensions and how those are uh, made vulnerable by being tied to oil and gas, uh, Canadian oil and gas as well as global oil and gas. And uh, uh, what can be done about that, as well as uh, global insurance firms and uh, what uh, they are talking about in terms of how climate change is going to impact uh, global insurance companies uh, and who and how they can uh, insure people. And uh, Tim, I think you're is. there. Are you Tim? Yeah, can you hear me? Woo! Hello, Tim. Hey, hey, this is so exciting. Whenever I'm teching and the phones work, we're having a good day. <laughs> All right, so Tim, here's how it's going to work because uh, you're our remote host today. Um, so uh, Dave was just outlining a few things. We, personally, I would really love to hear you talk about yourself for a minute. There, we mentioned your Toronto Star article. Maybe you could start with that. But the way that we're going to, I think, we'll do this here is if we, uh, we're just going to let you direct. I think largely um, we do want to get to those topics that Dave mentioned, uh, but we may cut in here. But sort of feel free to take the reins, and we're going to jump in. You can also feel free to ask us stuff if you'd like. So we're here to serve you, Tim. Take it away. Oh wow! Okay. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a, a, an incredible whirlwind of media activity for me over the last I would say kind of three or four months, and I think it's really exciting to see that uh, two things are happening. The first is that you know, I, and I've been working on the field of sustainable investing and green investing for about a decade now. I think I just had about my ten year anniversary from starting my first company. Obviously, it was ten years ago that we were in the midst of the huge crash. So those things correlated quite nicely for me. Um, but really, you know, when I started talking about this stuff, nobody knew what the heck I was talking about. Um, I mean, even the first few appearances I had on the Green Majority, so much of it was just explaining, wait a second, you know, so there is, you can do green investing, you can do sustainable investing. 
people thought my term, the sustainable economist, was a complete oxymoron, that there was no way that those two things could go together. And now what we're seeing is this growing sort of mainstreaming of uh, sustainable investment and green investment. And it's been phenomenal. And, you know, I think part of it, I'm, I'm very lucky. It's sort of a, a, a right place at the right time, but also, you know, one of these overnight successes that takes about a decade to happen. Um, but really, it's just been incredible, all the media attention I started getting. And this isn't me reaching out and trying to pitch organizations. This is reporters who are hearing about these things, thinking it'd be a good story, uh, doing a little homework online, and then finding me. And um, so really, it's been incredible to see, uh, you know, I've been on CBC's The National, uh, CTV's Your Morning, The Morning Show, and then more recently, um, you know, got picked up, had this article for the Canadian press that got picked up by the Toronto Star, the National Post, the Global Mail. And then I think the Toronto Star actually even then reposted it last week, um, which to me tells me that there's something happening that, you know, these, these articles are getting more clicks, the more people are interested, you know, whereas I remember when I started, I would have a hard time getting, you know, 15 people to come to a workshop. Uh, now, you know, I did a, a webinar last week with a group called Co-Power, where, you know, we had, I think, 75 people in person and another 125 people uh, online participating. So this is just really encouraging for me. It's just kind of taken off. People, I think, are looking for solutions that in, you know, with all the pessimism around uh, the, the politics and, you know, the research reports and a lot of people, are, I think, are feeling that we're, we're really, frankly, kind of screwed when it comes to climate change and are looking for something to do about it. They, they, they want to have these sort of actionable, tangible impacts. And whereas I think we most of us as environmentalists have covered sort of the low-hanging fruit where, you know, we're not flying as much. You know, a lot of us don't have cars or have hybrids or electric vehicles. A lot of us are, are you know, shifting to a plant-based diet you know, but really understanding what, what's the next step and how do we move beyond personal action to this more systemic economic shift. And so when people learn about green investing, they understand that, you know, the default setting when people invest uh, uh, their money in the stock market is both to be really high fees and then also to be a really high carbon footprint. Um, you know, people are really waking up to that fact and are looking for alternatives and are looking for ways to be able to have a positive impact um, while also earning better financial returns. And this is a drum that I've been beating now for years and years and years, but we're really seeing it come through with uh, a sustainable funds. It's now starting to be a more uh, obvious gap in performance. And I'll point to you know, a, a recent example just in the past couple of weeks, but I'm sure everyone's been following this SNC Lavalin sort of controversy. And obviously, there's a political element with Justin Trudeau kind of getting nailed for this. But politics aside, uh, really, if SNC Lavalin got caught uh, bribing Libyan a Libyan dictator, I think they gave us down about 130 million dollars. And that what we're seeing now is that you know they got caught. It's going to go. Through, it's going through the court system. They're not going to be prosecuted, which means that if this they continue to get prosecuted, they're not going to be able to bid on government contracts for the next ten years. 
And this is a huge financial issue as well as a massive ethical breach. Now, SNC Lavalin has had so many controversies in their history. Like, it's just insane how, you know, uh, uh, how much corruption they've been involved in. That uh, this comes as no surprise. And they've been screened out of all these socially responsible investment funds for years. Um, and so when we saw, you know, it was probably about two or three weeks ago where this announcement came out. And then all of a sudden, you know, actually, forgive me, it wasn't a few weeks ago. It was probably a few months ago. I said back in September, October, where the stock just absolutely nosedived on this news that they're probably not going to be able to bid for government contracts. You know, that, that's a huge hit to investors. Investors lost a, m- a lot of money on this. And if you're invested in the Toronto Stock Exchange, if you've got a big chunk of your pie that's allocated to Canadian stocks, there's a huge chance you own SNC-Lavalin. Whereas if you own a socially responsible fund, like, for example, the Janssen Social Index, we knew that this was a corrupt company, so we had excluded that company years ago and obviously didn't see those declines. <laughs> So it's just becoming so obvious that this is not only the right thing to do, it's also the smart thing to do. And, um, you know, really it's just, I'm just thrilled that people are really kind of waking up to this issue. Um, both, you know, we're seeing it across the board that pension funds are waking up to it. And, you know, there are all these big investors that we've got um, uh, 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 the media waking up to this, looking for all types. Of, of, of stories in terms of understanding, you know, helping their readers understand that this is something they can do. And then obviously as people re- are reading these stories, and I think a lot of listeners of your show, if they haven't already, you know, must be looking at their investment portfolio and saying, wait a minute, you know, this is something I really need to pay attention to. Now, Tim, one of the, uh, you have many duties as a correspondent on this program. One of your primary duties has always been keeping my cynicism in check. Yes. So um, I something came out to me here, but I I I will I've already admitted, and I will admit again that I'm I'm really out of uh, out of I'm finishing up school, and I'm really out of touch with what's going on right now. So I don't know the details of that story, honestly. But okay. as you were talking, um, you said something which I'm hoping you can either uh, underline or correct me on, which was you said that there there was uh, this activity was revealed, but that the stock didn't nosedive until after the effect of that was announced. I That's that right. they wouldn't get contracts. Is my cynicism alarm going off correctly there? That oh, yeah. Nobody cared about the actual activity. It was just about the uh, losing the contracts that they cared oh. about? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, ethical investors cared, sustainable investors cared. But it's still not, there aren't enough of us yet to really see that impact come through. But that's in not, share prices. that's but not, you're right. I'm sorry to you're underline right. it, but that's, it's not like they were just using a, uh, a slightly outdated form of plastic that had been banned, and uh, well, they're colluding with a dictator. I mean, yeah. come on. Yeah, and I mean the story behind this, you know, is I've been digging deeper into it, and it's just absurd to think, you know, basically this dictator son uh, had a, a, a paid visit to Canada, where you know they had private security, and the am- amount of money that was spent on you know adult entertainment, quote unquote. And, you know, I think it was like, a, um, you know, a, a balcony seat or a box seat to, I forget what concert it was, but I want to say like a Spice Girls concert or something, you know, that this was all uh, um, set up by this Canadian company. So really, and in exchange for contracts, construction, engineering, uh, 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 development contracts, 
in Libya. So they were very, very clearly buttering up this dictator for that financial gain. And you're right that the first legal proceedings, like, they kind of got caught back in 2013. And obviously it takes time to wind its way through the court. And really the stock only fell when it looked like they weren't going to be able to weasel their way out of those legal implications. So you're spot on right with your cynicism here, (laughs) that it really is the economic driver. But what I'm trying to clarify here is that there is now a stronger and stronger link between the ethics and the financial performance, and that ethical investors are able to avoid a lot of those very real financial risks by eliminating these companies that have a history of ethical breaches. And uh, Tim, we're just over the halfway mark in our first segment here. So uh, what I think I'm going to do, I'll ask uh, to constrain you to sort of topics already discussed here. We'll just start. uh, I had one question about from farther back as well. So we kind of merged in uh, two of the topics into this section, which is great. The the first topic you mentioned we asked you about was um, your time interviewing and what I was uh, being interviewed. And so, I mean, these two topics are related in the sense that as you related them, which in the sense that, you know, there's we're just talking about sort of the the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The. Uh, the lack of friction on these ideas, basically, <laughs> just like how yeah. uh, there's a better word for it. But I, I think people follow what I'm getting at there. Um, so the idea would be so what we were talking about was that, you know, there's this idea of like first they mock you, then they join you, that sort of idea. So yeah. a lot of what you were talking about was about getting these ideas out in front of people and people understandably to some degrees, initial reaction being skeptical, as you talked about. Right. So what yeah. I wanted to do was ask you to take that. You were talking about individuals, in this case, customers for your business. Yeah. Um, Take that same question and apply it to the interviews, because one of the, as you know, one of the main topics we like to really spend a lot of time on here is about how the rest of the media, particularly the corporate media, covers these conversations. So when you've been going in, I've seen one or two of your videos, but I think many of the listeners probably haven't seen any or may have only seen one. We'll share them. Um, But if you can just describe how you were treated by the interviewers, were you because, you know, as we all know, just because you're on the news doesn't mean they think you're serious. Sometimes they put you on the news because you they they want to make fun of you, essentially. How have you been treated? What was your response by the journalists been? Do you feel like you were brought on as the crazy extremist who we're going to point a finger at and say, wow, look at that guy? Or do you really feel like these people are taking you, like the, the journalistic institution right. are taking you seriously? So just, just to remind you, my first TV appearance way back when, and this would, I'm guessing would be 2011, 2012. My first time going on TV was going up against Kevin O'Leary on the Lang and O'Leary exchange. So this was the old CBC, you know, I think it was uh, uh, CBC News World. You know, and they had this daily financial show with Kevin O'Leary back when he was kind of more Canadian. And uh, and at that time, I think that very much uh, I was brought on to that show um, with something to say and talking about, you know, my research report. But it was very clear to me that uh, uh, I was put up against Kevin O'Leary as a foil, that this is something that he we knew he would be upset with and sort of deride me for and kind of mock in his way. And I stepped into that situation knowing what I was getting into, prepped and, and feel like I did a pretty darn good job, uh, understanding that you know I did have some anxiety around cameras. I think so considering national TV. I think considering you were brought in to be the foil for somebody who's a, sort of a famous <laughs> jerk, I think you did an right. exceptional job. That one Thank I did you. see, and I think that was that wasn't that was a case study in first attempts. I think. So. And, and from there, it was really you know it was really I think that you know at that point. 
it, it, people realize, and, and certainly I think journalists always do look at your sort of back reel, you know, and kind of understand, okay, is this guy going to be a decent interview? And I think people looked at, the, at that and said, okay, you know, this guy kind of knows what he's talking about, and he's able to stand up in that type of scenario. Now, more recently, uh, I've got now a regular feature on a show called Market Call. This is on BNN Bloomberg, um, and it, I go on. It's a live one-hour call-in show where people call in asking about companies. Now, in doing my homework and looking at other people who've been on the show, overwhelmingly, they get experts who come in and talk about oil and gas and mining and pipelines, and, you know, really because that is so much of the Canadian economy. And so I got recommended for that show. I think they kind of took a chance on me, knowing that the topic was green. And certainly walking into that scenario, everyone was very skeptical. I feel that the producer was kind of like, okay, let's see how this goes. Mm. Not sure how people are going to react. The host was definitely a little like, okay, green investing. Let's see how it does. And it was hilarious on being on that show because company after company, the returns have just been really, really good. Mm. So, you know, and looking at the dividends that some of these renewable energy companies can pay, and um, and it's going to be great. Like, I remember the last time I was on uh, was in December, and this is when the markets were really down. Markets were down in December, and they, um, it was a bit of a funny situation. They have this game where they you do your top picks, and then when you go on the show the next time, they kind of say, how are your top picks doing? Mm. Well, obviously, it was in December. The markets were down a lot. So I always tend to do two sort of, you know, ETFs, these chain-traded funds that kind of track the markets. Obviously, those were down, although one wasn't down as much. But then I had this one company. I always choose one company as a bit of a flyer. And that one happened to be up 10%. And so when the host saw that, she was like, wait a minute. We haven't seen anything that's been up in the last several weeks. Why is this doing well? And I'm happy to report that I took a bit of a chance in that, knowing that the markets were down. I, cho- I chose a riskier company. This company called, uh, it's OLED, is the ticker symbol. It's, uh, um, uh, uh, oh, I forget the name of the company off the top of my head. Uh, Universal Display Corporation. And I don't know if you've seen these, like, foldable phones that have been just announced, but all these foldable phones use this technology of organic LEDs. And so I'm going to go back on market call in a couple weeks, and I'm just looking at the chart for OLED, and this is up more than 55% since I was on the show. So it's going to be one of these things where I'm going to get to go on there and be completely smug, right? (laughs) Knowing, And, and, you know, let's be clear, I got very lucky on this. I'm not going to pretend I'm, you know... I'm, I'm really good at picking individual stocks. I got very lucky on this. But again, it's really nice for me to be able to go into these very professional settings and just blow everyone else out of the water when it comes to their own game, which is those financial returns. So I've always seen myself as kind of the ambassador on the green side saying that, you know, that, that oftentimes they want to portray us as more extremist, as, you know, sort of uh, uh, out to lunch and especially as sort of financially illiterate and not understanding economic issues. So my favorite role is to go in there and just really surprise them and, you know, be overly professional and, you know, hopefully articulate and really show them that this is, this is the future, that you can make more money today, but that obviously when you understand the gravity of climate change risks and opportunities, 
that as we look at the next five years, 10 years, 25 years down the road, you know, we're going to be talking about things like the Green New Deal, right? And these different issues that, that are emerging and that as those continue to emerge and become more mainstream, that this is going to be, you know, there's, this is going to be the way to invest if you just want those financial returns. And then, of course, the ethical side on top of that, that you get to feel good while you're making money. I'm afraid we're out of time for this section, Tim, but thankfully for me and for our listeners, you're going to be back in a few minutes. Uh, So we're going to give you a chance to grab a coffee. Uh, The listeners can do that as well. We're going to have our music break now. Uh, Yet another Golden Dave recommendation here. I don't care just where you go as long as long as it's with me And I don't mind just what as long as long as it's with me too the green majority is entirely listener supported our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month if you enjoy the show please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1 you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, the local stratosphere, as well as our podcast, uh, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. That's uh, Earth's uh, internet, in case you're wondering, just for clarity there. Um, <laughs> I'm going to handle the supporting host reins now over to Dave for this section. Lauren, I would love to talk to you, but Dave hasn't got a chance to talk much. So, uh, You guys uh, have a great time. We'll see you in a few minutes. Hi, Lauren. Hi there. You uh, com- you were organizing the um, power shift uh, thing that happened in Ottawa a couple weeks ago. Do you want to mention anything about that? Or do you want to just jump right into the Sunrise Movement stuff? You know what? Let's just jump right into Sunrise. We can always uh, we can always circle back to power shift if there's time or if it's relevant afterwards. But thanks so much for the opportunity. <laughs> All right, sounds good. So um, yes, more than 250 young activists with the Sunrise Movement occupied Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's office in Washington D.C. on Monday morning to shame him and his colleagues for their utter failure to act on climate change and for being in the pocket of major polluters. 15-year-old Lily Gardner told reporters, "Quote." I am here urging him to consider the young Kentuckians who have traveled all the way to ask him, why why are our voices not being listened to? She added, I am scared. We are all scared. The activists were wearing Sunrise Movement shirts that read, quote, we have a right to good jobs and a livable future. McConnell wasn't in at the time, but a spokesperson said that all Kentuckians are welcome in his office and that these activists were no exception, and yet 42 of them were subsequently arrested. Executive Director of the Sunrise Movement, Varshini Prakash, said at the action, quote, We have known about this crisis for 40 years, and it was an, it, it was an emergency then. It's a full-blown planetary crisis now. For 40 years, we've seen the way that fossil fuel executives have misinformed the public on the science. We've seen the way that they have poured billions of dollars into the campaign coffers of politicians on both sides of the aisle. And we've seen the way that politicians like Mitch McConnell and the GOP elite have taken 80% of those oil and gas donations. She also said, quote, All we're asking for is to have a goddamn chance at a livable future. Sunrise Movement activists had recently had a run-in with Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein, who rejected their call for her to back the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal briefly is a major... is. Uh, 
is a call for a major economic transportation and infrastructure overhaul that would move the U.S. to 100% renewable energy by 2030, replace air travel with high-speed rail, upgrade all existing buildings, and require new buildings to employ maximal energy efficiency. It would also end worker exploitation, dealing with climate change by focusing on inequality, education, and efficient design. Mitch McConnell is currently trying to push through a Senate vote on the Green New Deal in order to force Democratic presidential hopefuls to public re- publicly record their stance on the proposition. Frontrunners Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren are already have already shown their support for a Green New Deal. 17-year-old activist Destine Grigsby said the vote is, quote, a way for Mitch McConnell to crush our movement, a way for him to just play games with our futures. Indeed, new climate action momentum is being built on a hard timeline given by recent scientific findings that show we need to decarbonize within 12 years or risk global catastrophe. Uh, But yes, did you have any thoughts on this? What do you know about the Sunrise Movement or their... Their actions, because you've done you've done similar similar actions to this in Canada. Yeah, yeah, there have been similar things happening in Canada, and and I guess just like first off, I just want to start off. I'm I'm sure we don't have any listeners in the Sunrise Movement, but if there are any young people from the states who are listening, who are who are involved or considering getting involved, it's we just have to say that like it is so unbelievably impressive the mm. work that they're doing right now and how important it is, like. The stuff that's coming out of Sunrise and, and similar movements here in, in, in what we call Canada are, are, are some of the only things that provide any inspiration when it comes to the climate movement anymore because you're finally seeing young people, and, and young people have always been fighting for, for climate justice, but finally getting the coverage they deserve and and, and the notoriety they deserve. Uh, yeah, notoriety is the right word. Um, <laughs> yeah, when, when, it comes to, when it comes to these issues, they're, they're, they're being so bold and so brave and it's and it's so impressive and it's so important. Um, and I feel like that just sort of has to be said that from the get go. Um, reading about the stories that have come out the last couple of weeks. So so yeah. So there was the McConnell one this week, and then you briefly mentioned um, when they had gone or when when a sort of cohort of them had gone to see Diane Feinstein mm-hmm. last week. And watching footage from that was just unbelievable. And I remember it was it was it was blowing up on social media and Twitter for for a couple of days before I actually like turned the sound on and watched the video <laughs> clip. And I was just blown away because you've got you've got these young people and 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 Sunrise is made up of sort of like a, a wide variety of young people from a lot of sort of backgrounds and, and different ages. But but you had these two um, young women specifically who, who I, I'm not too sure how old they are. They didn't look to be any older than 11 or 12 years old. Wow. Sort of imploring the senator to take action and to sign up or and to, to, to sign on to the Green New Deal. And, and I'm sure you've seen it, David, but she's, she's standing there talking to them and saying things like, I've been a senator for 30 years. I know how these things go. And like disparaging them and shaming them for, for, for asking her to do more and telling them they don't know what they're talking about. And that like, Politics aren't just their way or the highway. And, and, and at one point, one of the older uh, members of Sunrise said to her, like, she was engaging the senator. And the senator responds, well, I hope you run for Senate one day if you know, if, like, if you know so much and if you know yeah. what you're talking about. It was just unbelievable, the audacity of this woman to stand there and say, yes, I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. And it's like, that is literally the point that you've been in office 
for 30 years, supposedly <laughs> as, a, as a progressive Democrat, supposedly doing all the right things, and yet we're still in the situation, and you still have 11-year-olds in your office imploring <laughs> you to essentially save their lives, and 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 you're and you're talking back to them. It's, it was oh my god, it was unbelievable. She's like citing her grandchildren and blah blah blah. It's yeah. I don't know. For any listeners who haven't watched the clip, please go find it. it it's readily available on the internet, and it, it really is just sort of, it's astounding. And and we shouldn't think that those are only sort of narratives coming out of politics in the States. Like, the exact same thing is happening up here whenever you get young people going to the offices of their MPs or representatives. You're getting the exact same backtalk, the exact same level of disrespect and and being disregarded and contempt for, for young people taking action on climate. So we're, we're not speaking from a place of authority up north. Yeah. So just, I just wanted to come in uh, with two quick things, Lauren. Uh, first of all, it's uh, just to add on to what you were saying. It's not that she had 30 years and didn't do anything. She spent 30 years actively fighting against it. So let's be, mm-hmm. let's be really clear here. She's not saying, what am I supposed to do? I'm helpless. She's saying, no, no, you don't understand. I'm on their side. Like yeah. that's, that's literally like literally she's not saying, sorry, she's not saying that, but she is literally on their side. She has, she takes money from those people and has fought against it. This is the exact same thing she did during, uh, the Medicare for all, uh, during Obama's first term when they were originally proposing that stuff. These folks are paid to be the liberal safeguard against getting too liberal policies. That's what their job is. And she's been effective at that for 30 years. So yes, yeah, she does have a 30 year track record of fighting against this stuff, make it being the left guard to make sure that corporate America never actually has to deal with any actual real human facing policy. Sorry, that was a bit of a diatribe, but I just really think that's important to hammer home. She's not throwing up her hands and saying, hey, I'm helpless. What do you want me to do? I'd love to help you, but I can't. It's no, no, I won't. I'm paid by those people to help prevent this from happening. Uh, the other thing, uh, just really quickly, was I wouldn't be so sure some, no one from the Sunrise Movement is listening. We got a lovely email. For, we were talking about uh, Mongolian mining companies a few weeks ago, and then last uh, this week we actually got a letter from someone in Mongolia who was like, hey, that's my place. Do you have any more information on that? So uh, uh, first of all, shout out to that listener in Mongolia. Second of all, don't be so sure they're not listening. <laughs> Excellent, yeah. excellent clarification. Thank you so much, Darren. Yes, I believe um, Feinstein said specifically, like, uh, they don't don't have the votes for that. I know what I'm doing. Uh, and then after they left, she was like, I just want the children to know that they were heard. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I, I can only imagine. I wish watching that video it was obviously shot from a cell phone. You almost wish you could like pan back and see the looks of her staffers standing behind her. I'm sure just like the color draining from their faces, <laughs> realizing that this was going to go viral. Yeah. Uh, As oh my their God. boss gets berated by 12 year olds. By 12 year olds, exactly. Uh, I guess the other thing that I did sort of want to sort of briefly circle back to is was when you were talking about the, um, again, the, the occupation of McConnell's office earlier, earlier this week, mm-hmm. um, and, and how, yeah, staffers in that office were saying like, oh, like, constituents are always welcome in the office activists included blah 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 and then they turned around and had 42 young people arrested yeah and again it's just like really as a, a, it's 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 not all that surprising but the realization that a politician would rather jeopardize 42 young people well they're jeopardizing all of our futures but like the the potentially the permanent records and and legal i don't know futures of these 42 young people instead of just sitting down and talking to them mm. and and listening to them and giving them the time of day and, and hearing what they have to say, you, you don't even have to really pay attention to it. But really, to to arrest them, to arrest forty two young people, yeah. is just mind boggling. And these are his constituents. These are people from Kentucky. I mm-hmm. mean, maybe he's old and they're not yet of voting age, so he just doesn't care. 
but I mean, he pretends to care. Like, oh, all Kentuckians are welcome. These are my constituents. I'm a Kentuckian. You're mm-hmm. welcome. However, you're now being arrested. Exactly. Um, <laughs> would you like to continue talking about the Sunrise, or would you like to move on to uh, perhaps the National Energy Board's new recent ruling? Or, Ooh. Um, yeah, that have... sounds fun. Okay. <laughs> Let's dig into that. Be right. happy to hear other voices on that one as well, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yes, the National Energy, Energy Board... Uh, has recommended approval of the controversial Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion for a second time, which would, of course, triple existing capacity and majorly increase tanker traffic off narrow and tricky portions of the coast of British Columbia. The board admits that the project will significantly harm the orca population, indigenous culture, and cause more greenhouse gas emissions in a world already approaching climate crisis, but that the project should go through anyway since it will create jobs and bring Canadian oil to larger markets. Supporters of the pipeline seem to believe that as long as debate continues in a respectful way, it's okay that the government, which owns the pipeline, has already vowed to build the thing, despite a requirement that meaningful consultation with Indigenous stakeholders must be carried through. So the dissonance continues as consultation is somehow considered meaningful, even though the outcome has been decided in advance. Alberta Premier Rachel Notley said, quote, We need to hold the federal government's feet to the fire and keep countering misinformation with facts and the good sound reason for why this pipeline needs to happen. As noted in a previous show, however, Rachel Notley's own government has been consistently using public money to fund its own misinformation campaign about the pipeline, stating that it will not expand tar sands operations when the companies involved have repeatedly said that the need for tar sands expansion is the main driver behind the pipeline. Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, Phillip of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs has, has, has promised more lawsuits and vowed again that the project, quote, will never, ever see the light of day. BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver said, quote, BC's economic future lies in the innovative, creative industries that are, look, that are leading global economic growth, not the sunset industries of yesterday. And Green Party leader Elizabeth May argued that the project will not, in fact, be economically beneficial probably since the environmental harm and the risk of investing in a collapsing industry and the jobs available in environmental cleanup, efficiency, and industry together outweigh the short-term benefits of the pipeline. So there you have it. The uh, NEB has once again uh, recommended construction of the pipeline, and the government has a direct interest, obviously, $4.5 billion interest in its being built. Yeah, and... It, we all knew that that, that was going to be the ultimate ruling. The NEB, I'm fairly certain in their entire history, has never once denied an energy project. They're, they're, they're there to rubber stamp, basically, and, and provide a, an a authoritative sort of acceptance of a project, I guess. It's, yeah, we always knew this was going to be the ruling. I guess the one positive that came out of it is that it bought land protectors and water protectors a little bit of time to, to strategize further and figure out what next steps are going to be, because... Because the Grand Chief's right, it's not going to be built. There are too many people in opposition. There are too many people who are who are dedicated to making sure this project doesn't see the light of day. Um, and we always knew the NEB wasn't going to save us. But it's it's just it's another example of, of how these boards and committees and this government isn't here to, to fight for us the way we need them to. Yeah, and um, if it doesn't, uh, in fact, get built, as all of these groups have uh, vowed that it won't, we're looking at a major politi- political uh, crisis in Canada because there are already people um, literally busing across uh, the country to protest in support of the pipeline and are being given uh, violent instructions by, by, current, uh, by, by sitting politicians. So uh, we're looking at 
uh, very intractable uh, stances on both sides, both sides, and it's really uh, unclear how it would play out. Yeah, no, it's it, there. There's the potential for so obviously there's there's already there's already been violence around this around this pipeline. I mean, mm. if you look back on Burnaby Mountain when when water protectors and land protectors were were arrested and taken away violently and. And I mean, you look, obviously, it's not specifically around Kinder Morgan, but, but the violent arrests that have taken place at Unistoten Camp um, out on the West Coast as well. Like, it's, it's not like violence, violence has been absent from mm-hmm. these struggles already. But, but no, you're right, referencing, referencing the caravan that came to Ottawa just, what, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago now? And, mm-hmm. and yeah, you, you had Andrew Shear and Faith Goldie and, and other sort of right-wing leaders and figureheads calling, calling for, for physical violence uh, uh, against, against these protectors and against these opponents of the pipeline and, and projects like it. Um, and then not to mention the fact that like, yeah, taxpayers are still out $4.5 billion and that price tag's only going up. And, and that's, that, that is weight that Trudeau is going to have to carry. That was a decision he made and, and it was a poor one, um, on so many, on so many levels, but, but not insignificant among them is the amount of money that he lost the taxpayers of, of this country. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be strange to see how it goes forward. They have apparently 90 days, the government, to uh, begin doing what they're doing, or they could extend that past May. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so we're, we're sort of out of time in the segment. I don't know if, Sarah, and if you want to have something to add or do you want to go straight to the music? No, um, I was just going to say that, um, rephrase what I basically already said is basically something I've been saying for two years, which is that one of the real threats, the, uh, beside the immediate threat of people like Trump and uh, Ford, for instance, um, is that they make people like Diane Feinstein and Justin Trudeau look like the good guys and they get to play mm-hmm. the good guys in the media. They get to play the good guys. And what it does is it sets the, the upper limit of reasonable discourse, right? Because if, well, Justin Trudeau, he's the head of the liberals, they're the government. So that's the extreme of acceptable positions. And so that's why it really, 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 really matters what these people are saying. Um, because they're basically saying we, you know, the, our team can go up to this point and anything past that, I'm going to join with our enemies in saying that you shouldn't be listened to, uh, because we are, we're all just going to decide that that's really extreme and that that's the other real danger of these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we on the left, there's been a lot of chatter lately about shifting the Overton window with the green new deal, about what's possible in, in progressive environmental policy, but the right's doing the exact same thing and they're doing a really good job of it. Yeah. And that's why I like to make fun of Justin Trudeau because he needs to be taken down a peg. So, sorry, Justin, you're the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> Literally no one is sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. So we were talking about um, sunrises. I have no idea what this song that you recommended, Dave, is about, but I'll tell you that the video that is going to play from has a sunrise on it. I've already forgotten what it is. It's uh, Prince Ness with Nice Life. Oh, Lauren, excellent. It was really excellent. nice talking to you. We'll talk to you again real soon, okay? Absolutely. Talk to you. <laughs> Take care. Here's our music break. And we're going to be back in just a minute with Tim Nash again. Uh, we'll be right back. All right, we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, or the podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. Tim Nash is back. 
Tim, I'm uh, back. <laughs> Tim is back. It was, we missed you. Uh, so, uh, what, so Dave had a couple of things that he'd uh, outlined to talk to you about. Um, we're going to let you choose which one, but I, uh, I'm going to let Dave sort of offer you the two. He has some notes here. So, so Dave's just going to really quickly outline two stories, and then you can take your choice, okay? I love it. It's like deal or no deal. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Dave, take it away. So I have a, uh, a general thing published on Tuesday in the Toronto Star in which you were featured, Tim Nash, talking in generally about green investing. I have a a thing we briefly covered before, but not very uh, extensively, about Canadian pensions, and to have something about global investment, global insurance. What are you looking at, Tim? Oh, I mean, these are all so good. Uh, I, let's not talk about myself. I did enough of that earlier. Okay. Uh, so let's go. You know what? I've been getting a lot of questions around pensions lately. Okay. And, you know, CTP. So let's go for the big fish and talk about some pension stuff. Okay, sweet. So, um, yes, many Canadian uh, retirement plans uh, rely on the longevity of Canadian oil and gas through ownership of public equity shares, and many pension funds are also reliant on those companies as well as global fossil fuel companies, and a great many oil and gas employees in Canada have defined pension obligations, all of which uh, investments are going to be threatened if we are to deal seriously with climate change. The National Observer quoted business analyst Saline Back as stating, quote, Should any of these companies fail, Canada would be faced with pension defaults reminiscent of those of Nortel and Sears Canada. This would have a potentially devastating impact on pension beneficiaries and particularly on women who, by virtue of salary gaps, are less able to save privately for retirement. Once the implications of the Paris Agreement are fully priced into the market, oil and gas asset valuations will shift. If this change is sufficiently large, debt covenants may be triggered in companies. This will in turn impact financial institutions, including banks, insurance companies, and pension funds. Since Canadian oil and gas companies are currently valued for their proven and provable reserves, those companies could drop uh, dramatically in value if we ever admit that uh, over a quarter of those barrels will have to remain in the ground. That's between $120 and $270 billion worth of fossil fuel that will have to be left untouched. Explaining why companies and institutions should be made to disclose the climate risks of their investments and activities, Back said, quote, The intent of disclosure is it enables analysts, chief economists, bank CEOs, pension CEOs, and savers like us to see the alignment of a given company's strategy with certain climate scenarios. Over time, if all these pieces come together, we should be able to make really easy decisions about how investments, whether they're pipelines or investing in new fossil fuel exploration globally, are aligned with the Paris Agreement, because at the moment we don't have that information. That's what yeah. I have on that. Yeah. Okay, so two, two separate issues there uh, that I can pick up on. Uh, the first is that if these companies go bankrupt, uh, a la Nortel or Sears, that uh, employees who have these pension plans um, could be left without pension, mm. right? And we've seen this before, and inevitably we're going to see it again. Like, companies are going to go bankrupt. There's no way to go around that. Um, really what it comes down to is the need for all employees, but especially employees who have pension plans, to diversify their investments. Um, the worst thing, the worst story that I can possibly relate on this topic was uh, back to everybody's favorite evil company, Enron. Mm. You guys remember Enron at all? Do you want, oh, want yeah. a quick reminder on that one? Or I am, I'm old enough remember to remember, yeah. Some of the same characters are involved with what's going on right now. But uh, maybe give us so, a primer. 
they were they were a company that was fraudulent. They uh, they basically they lied to investors, uh, pumped up profits and revenues, uh, built a house of cards, and then the whole thing came tumbling down. And so obviously, any employees there that worked for Enron lost their jobs and and were in deep trouble. The the truly sad thing about that story is that at Enron, because the stock had been doing so well, right, and a lot of uh, employees often have these stock options where uh, instead of a bonus or instead of, you know, as part of their salary, they'll get shares in the company. And it kind of became a badge of honor to have 100% of your portfolio in Enron stock <laughs> while you were an employee in at Enron. And for a little while, it looked great. Like That would have been the best strategy. It was one of the best performing companies. Obviously, because they were committing fraud to keep their share price going up and up, you know, all these bubbles and sort of Ponzi schemes look great on the upside. But then, obviously, when the House of Cards fell, those employees not only lost their livelihood, they also lost their life savings. Mm. And that's kind of the double whammy that employees can see happen if they're not properly diversified. So I would hope that employees who are in any type of, of, of transition sector or you know really any sector at all, number one, would ensure that their pension plans are properly diversified. Right now that said, if it's a defined benefit contribution plan, Right. This is where, you know, if the company goes bankrupt, it's those pension liabilities, you know, also can kind of disappear with the company, which means it doesn't matter what it's invested in, it, it, there's no more money left there, which is trouble. Um, so what everybody needs to do is to have a backup plan, is to ensure their own personal investment. And please, 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 if you're listening to this show and you work for a company that does give you stock options, great. Take those stock options. Take that free money, but on a very, very deliberate schedule. So ideally once or twice a year, you know, usually they have this period where you have to own the shares for a certain amount of time. And as soon as that time period is up, you want to sell the majority of those shares. It does not be all of them, but most of them. And you want to spread that money around because the worst case scenario for people that are working in this sector is that not only are they out of a job, but now their safety net and their retirement nest egg has also disappeared. So that's kind of the first, the first piece of that puzzle. Uh, the second piece of the puzzle is recognizing that, you know, a lot of Canadians, um, if they just have these standard investments in, uh, uh, you know, at the bank or, you know, even with the Canadian pension plan, um, that oftentimes by default, they are very heavily exposed to uh, carbon-intensive sectors. And the reason for this is twofold. So number one is that there is this thing that we have in the investment world called the home bias. And this is a bias towards putting more of your portfolio in your home country. So although Canada contributes to about 3% of global GDP, and the Canadian stock market accounts for about 3.5% of the global stock market, it's very common to see investors that have 15, 20, 25% of their portfolio invested in Canadian stock. That's very, very common to see. And if you own one of these balanced portfolios, 
or if you're with a robo-advisor, like well, simple, you know, that is very much the common practice for us to be overweight the Canadian stock market. The issue is that I've got the numbers in front of me is that when you look at the Canadian stock market, so this is looking at the TSX 60, which is the most popular index, stock index in Canada, um, energy, which would be oil and gas and pipelines, accounts for 20% of the Canadian stock market. Mining, which uh, raw materials, which is mining and chemicals, accounts for just under 10% of that. So 30% of whatever is invested in the default Canadian stock market is invested in directly in extractive industries. And then on top of that, we've got the financial sector, which is almost 40%. And obviously, the Canadian banks themselves are very heavily exposed to oil and gas pipelines and mining. So now we're in a situation where up to 70% of the, the Canadian stock market could be affected by you know this news that as we start to price in the Paris Accord and this idea of stranded assets, that a huge chunk of the Canadian stock market is exposed to that. So again, now we're in this situation where when it comes to this idea of green investing and sustainable investing, you know, not only is there a moral implication here, there is a very, very real financial implication that as we start to transition away from fossil fuels, that that's going to have huge implications in terms of our stock market and in terms of people's personal investments. So, of course, you know, me as the economist, the mantra is, Diversify, diversify, diversify. So, you know, don't go super heavy in terms of the, the, the Canadian stocks. From there, understand that, you know, there are funds out there that look at carbon footprints and carbon risk. And there are lots of different low-carbon options that are available now. And these are ways for people to align it with their values while also lowering their risk exposure to these problematic sectors. And the last thing I want to mention here is that, you know, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of the discourse in Canada right now, and like everywhere else in the world, things are feeling very polarized. And my, my real sort of feeling on this is that I think as environmentalists, we need to be really aware of the language that we're using, that when we talk about shutting things down, right, and, and you know, really like stopping extraction full stop, we do need to understand that that is going to affect so many people's lives. Obviously, the direct people who work for those companies, right? But also understanding that that's going to have a big impact on all of our investments. Because all of us, even if we do sustainable investments, we, we do have part of the CPP, right? That Canadian Pension Plan. So all of us, all Canadians do have some exposure here. And I think that really what we need to do is Instead of this either-or, like I feel that I've got, you know, some people on my Twitter feed that are talking about sort of, you know, infinite expansion uh, of or the oil and gas sector in Alberta. And then I've got other people that are talking about shutting it down right away. And I think that we need to come together as a country and start to talk about transition and to start to create a long-term goal. And even if it's like, you know, and I know there's a real sort of heavy emphasis right now looking at the next 12 years, and certainly, you know, I don't want to undermine that at all, except to say that in terms of getting buy-in on these things, sometimes it helps to look a little further out. 
And if we can start to look at the world in 2040 or 2050 and understand, you know, what is what do we want the role of these sectors to be in that future? How do we start to plan for this transition right away? And there are some amazing groups. Uh, you know, there's a, a group called the, um, uh, the Energy Solutions Lab in Alberta, you know, and that's exactly what they're talking about. And, you know, so many of the issues we've discussed on the show before when it comes to retraining, right, when it comes to all these, but really understanding that there is this link between the social and the environmental issues, and that I don't think anyone needs to advocate and, and to say that we need to shut these things down right now, um, right away. What we do need to discuss is this uh, a slow and steady decline of our dependence on the fossil fuel economy. And that as we have those conversations, that's when we can start to diversify, that's when we can start to transition away and uh, to avoid this sort of jarring issue. But obviously there are people on the other side of the political uh, spectrum that want to double down on fossil fuel, that want to kind of keep growing, growing, growing. And, you know, frankly, that's just not a wise strategy. And, uh, and, and that, so I have no problem sort of calling out uh, the people who are, you know, advocating for infinite growth within these sectors. Um, but I also, you know, have some issue with people that are saying that we need to absolutely shut down these industries right away just because those economic consequences would be quite devastating. Oh, uh, and uh, my mic was off there. Uh, Tim, you actually stopped at the absolute perfect time. I had, I, in my head, I thought of like three more questions I want to ask you. All of them are <laughs> riveting, and we have time for none of them. Oh, no. Not I guess I'll have one. to come back on sometime. Not one. Can I tease a question just as a... Of course. So I was Googling Enron while you were talking, uh, talking because I thought I remembered something about RICO charges, and there is actually there was actually RICO charges. So they were charged as gangsters, wow. not uh, just as regular fraud. So many interesting topics there we could discuss. We'll have to get into it next time. Thank you so much, Tim Nash. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So that, as I said, that's all the time we have. Thank you to uh, Dave for carrying a lot of weight today and Lauren for jumping in, Tim Nash, our co-host, and you, the listener, for listening. Uh, we're going to be right back here next week. We have some more CBC doc uh, coverage next week. Uh, another great documentary uh, filmmaker uh, is going to be talking to us. All sorts of other cool stuff. Stay tuned. We'll talk to you real soon. Take care.